I grew up seeing myself everywhere in the media. And to be clear, no, it's not because I was a young child star or an acting prodigy. What I mean when I say that I grew up seeing myself everywhere in the media is that I grew up seeing people who looked like me. Men, young men, white men, cisgender men, heterosexual men, Christian men. I was raised Catholic. And even when these identifiers weren't front and center labels, as a young person who didn't know he held so many identities of privilege, I could still assume that the people I saw on my TV screens, even as a kid, were like me, and that I was like them. It's little wonder why, as a child, I had such a high self-concept, perceiving myself to be much like the cartoon superheroes and television crime fighters and comic book do-gooders who looked a lot like me. But not all of us get to see ourselves represented in the media, whether as children or even as adults. What does that do to someone's self-concept, to someone's self-esteem? Where do we look and who do we become when we don't see ourselves represented in the media? From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. When your identities and experiences in life reflect groups who are overrepresented in mass media, like me, it can be really easy to take that representation for granted. Our guest today knows what it's like to not see herself in the media, and she's on a mission to help professionals like her lay claim to their stories and their representation throughout the modern media landscape. We're joined today by Cher Hale. Cher is the founder and director of Ginkgo PR, a public relations firm that helps historically excluded authors, entrepreneurs, and leaders take back narratives that have traditionally been told for them, not by them, in the media. As a first-generation Taiwanese Black American woman, Cher has been on a mission to help historically marginalized populations get the recognition they deserve for the work they've done, oftentimes quietly, for years. On a bigger level, she hopes that her work in publicity, advocacy, and media relations is helping to move the needle towards equity for those who hail from historically marginalized identities. Cher, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Dave. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's start with that personal uh, personal set of intersectional identities that I see in your bio and read for our listeners. You describe yourself as a first-generation Taiwanese Black American woman and one who, as you describe in your bio as well, grew up in a predominantly white town in the United States. I believe in Michigan. Is that correct? You're right. It's Southern Michigan. In Southern Michigan. So as a just a basic starting point of our conversation, and certainly not because we want to introduce you through those, those labels and through those identities, because you're much more than that, as we all are. But I wonder if as a starting point, we could talk about your intersectional identities a little bit, especially with how they informed your experience of media representation starting at a young age. What comes up for you? Yeah, the first story that comes to mind for you and your audience is that my mother was the product of a Taiwanese woman and a Black man who was in the Air Force stationed in Taiwan. And it wasn't until she was about 13 years old that they applied for citizenship in the U.S. And she didn't get approved until she was 20 years old. And when she came to the U.S., she came without her mother, without any family. 
and didn't speak any English. So she raised me in Southern Michigan, uh, being bilingual, having these two lenses of culture, and wanting me deeply, deeply, deeply to be American and to not be Chinese, because that meant that I, was, I would stand out. And that sense of needing to be safe and not being able to stand out or to be seen or to be heard felt very deeply embedded in how she expected me to behave, not because she wanted me to be quiet or not a critical thinker, right? She wanted me to be all of those things. But in her mind as an immigrant, I think that safety was her first priority. There were very few families in this town where we lived. Um, and we stood out. I can't hide what I look like, and neither could she. But she looked much more Black than she looked Asian. And to that point, growing up in Taiwan as a Black woman who spoke Chinese, she always stood out. And so I think she had, that informed her experience of how she decided to teach me about who I am or how we behave in society. Yeah. And, and I love how you specify, share. The, the the important word, the one that like rang in my ears as I heard you was safety, right? The idea and the importance of, um, or the pressure, I should say, it, safety is of course one of the most paramount things that anyone, any human being can feel and deserves to feel, right? It's most, one of the most basic human rights. But the idea uh, uh, or the, the amount of pressure that comes with needing to and wanting to, deserving to feel safe when you stand out as different in a culture or a society that continually shares your diff differentness back to you or mirrors your differentness back to you or marginalizes that differentness. I can't imagine how much pressure that must have put on, in this case, your mother in wanting, as, a, as a, any mother does, to try to keep you safe and wanting you to therefore become American, to become or, or to integrate or to uh, conform or to erase maybe your, your culture, what kind of, uh, how did you experience that? I've, I've had conversations with especially um, first generation East Asian Americans who have, who have shared some of the pressures that they felt. I wonder for you, how you experienced that pressure. And if it puts you in, I believe it's called like sometimes called like a, being a third culture kid where you're not completely your first culture. You're not completely American culture. You're kind of navigating these worlds in between. Is that something you relate to as well? Definitely. I've always felt like I existed in a liminal space, right, between two worlds. And so that's probably why I turned to novels and to writing as a form of trying to understand the world and trying to understand myself and to see like where I really belong, like where I fit in within the narratives that we have uh, available to us. But I think you bring up a good point about there, there was a lot of pressure to be like the ideal child, the ideal immigrant child in this situation. Um, and I really wanted to understand Chinese culture. Like I really had a thirst and a curiosity for it. And I could tell she always begrudgingly shared those things with me. Um, there would be some like language lessons, but never too many. <laughs> some concepts about like Lunar New Year, but never too many. And I think that this idea of me needing to belong was just very, very important to her. So as an adult now who has a daughter, I have a two-year-old who is multicultural as well in a predominantly white area. <laughs> 
uh, I have made a point to really introduce uh, the Chinese culture to her so that she always remembers where she came from. And I think that now as children, even in this area, it's much easier to be multicultural than it used to be. Because I grew up in the 90s, right? And it was not cool to bring kimchi to school. It was not cool to share pineapple cakes with your friends. <laughs> but now it's much more accepted and understood. Yeah. It's it's funny. Like I, I am a fourth generation American of European ancestry, of Irish and Italian ancestry. So the Italian part, we might come back around to that. We might talk a little bit about some Italian culture later for reasons that our listeners will will discover, um, perhaps later on in our conversation if we get there, because we, we got a lot of ground to cover. But it's, it's funny to me because, of course, I've never had the direct experience that you've had in any way, shape, or form. But I've had stories passed on from my parents through, through uh, as related from their parents and their parents' parents. So the pressures from my great-grandparents who are, who are directly immigrants arriving in the Northeast United States, being fair-skinned, but feeling like outsiders or being made to feel like outsiders because there, there was some anti-Italian, anti-Irish discrimination, which I wouldn't compare to other forms of discrimination, but still existing in a way. And the pressures that they were applied and felt to conform uh, and yet still retain some cultural identity and the tension between that, right. Of like retaining who you feel you are and what your lineage is and what matters to you, your values and, um, and who your family is and, and who your, your, your people are. Right. Um, but also wanting to, uh, you know, um, to integrate and to become more and more American. And so you can see through my family lineage, how the names of people changed and when they became Americanized and when it went from, Carmine and Antonio to Stephen and David and, and how the language over time uh, was lost from the family that spoke only Italian and Italian and English to English and a very little bit of Italian to me where I speak only English and I can curse it fairly effectively in Italian, American, Italian um, only in moments <laughs> it, it kind of comes out, but um yeah, so, so I'm relating to some of the things that you were saying there, Cher, but what I wanted to bring in was your expression of feeling like you were in this liminal space in existing between worlds, right? Of existing between the, these, these different worlds um, that you were exposed to and also trying to become a part of. And I love how you mentioned that you start think that you started to write to better understand yourself and make sense, like the, the meaning-making process that comes, especially with a slow and in introspective practice like writing. As a fellow writer, I, I really relate to that. I wonder if as your, your experience with writing continued from a presumably a young age, if you found there to be a particular power or source of empowerment in being in that writing space, of being in the creative space, the communicating space, the liminal space, of bridging or tr uh, trying to bridge these worlds together and finding perhaps that you had something to offer to communicate with others from being in this observing role, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's interesting. I actually relate more closely to the process of reading than I do writing, at least when I was oh. a child, because mm -hmm. it felt to me like you could explore a range of emotion and experience in books that I didn't have access to as a child. And that I found really fascinating. Like I loved like most kids, the Wizard of Oz, right? Or like um, the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, where you could like walk through a door and go into a new world. 
And I found as I grew up and I began to read like more mature literature, um, that that sentiment remained though, that I, I still felt like I could just dip my toe into a whole new world and feel a range of human experience. And I wrote the entire time. I don't want to mislead you, right? I kept journals my whole life from the time I was like four or five up until now. Um, I also wrote short stories and I wrote a novel when I was 13. Like I wrote my entire life, but I never felt like I had the authority or the confidence to share that writing in a way that really, that felt safe. Um, I did take some creative writing classes where I, we did like, you know, like the workshop, workshop style critiques, but even then it just felt like I will never be good enough to actually publish a book or publish anything or, or win a prize like you see so many writers doing. Um, and so that, that kind of thought or that story belief was always in my head when it came to, could I ever really be a writer? And it's still something that I'm navigating today as I explore how my identity crashes into this idea of visibility, right? How visible do I think that I can be? How much space do I deserve to take up? Um, What kind of stories will people want to hear from me? Mm. There's, there's so many good threads that I want to try to grab some of these threads and like weave them with you a little bit for our listeners, because what I heard there share is the word safe came up again, unsurprisingly, right? It's like, it's going to be a key theme when we're having a conversation about visibility and belonging and, and identities, uh, and like outsider, insider, majority group, non-majority group kinds of identities. You mentioned visibility, um, and, and I can't help but, but remind our listeners that you work in public relations now, which is, which is an art in, in visibility, right? In, in presenting one's work and one's expertise and authority into the world and in different ways. And I also can't help but think of, you, you mentioned questioning, doubting, wondering about the sense of authority or confidence that you had to share your writing and your stories And I couldn't help but think about the internalized stories or experiences of oppression that tend to appear, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast in the last year, in a highly individualistic or sometimes maybe even toxic individualistic culture that would tell you, perhaps, that your fears or your discomfort or your self-questioning about your authority and confidence is internal and imply that it's your fault, right? The, the implication being, if you feel like you're small, everybody today uses the term imposter syndrome to refer to their self-doubts in a way that I think I was really relieved to hear for a long time. But now I go, is it really imposter syndrome that you're feeling? Or is it aspects of the world, culture, socialization, enculturation, telling you to stay small or reinforcing to you that if you get big or visible, that you're in physical danger. How have you navigated that, those questions? And um, because I'm only speculating and, and kind of inferring things based on what I'm hearing, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how those dynamics have played out a little bit for you as a creative, as a professional, and just as a human. Yeah, this is very deep well <laughs> of... Of reflection, I would say that it wasn't until 
probably my my mid-20s that I really began to find my voice. And it wasn't until I began to find my voice that I realized that I had always suppressed it. Mm. And that's an important distinction to make because up until then, I didn't believe that I had a visibility problem. I thought I was showing up in the way that I always wanted to show up. But the truth was that each experience that brought me to accepting my identity also brought me closer to lessening or shedding the layers that weren't actually me to your point right Mm. like what thoughts do i have that come from white settler colonialist mentality Mm -hmm. what thoughts do i have that come from capitalism or the patriarchy or sexism or any of these isms that we experience on a daily basis that we navigate uh And the more that I began to unpack those, the more I saw, oh, this is how I want to tell this story. Oh, like this is how I can show up and give an opinion. Um, Because as a child, I remember being so scared to even raise my hand in class. Um, I was terrified of being wrong. So I thought that wrong equated to being bad. Mm. And so there was always this like, you know, need to be psychologically safe um, so that people wouldn't think that I was stupid, that I think held me back from saying, hey, can I have some feedback on this work? Or, Mm. hey, can we like brainstorm this together and like find solutions as a team instead of me thinking that I need to be the sole fountain of my creation, (laughs) right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of um, resistance with collaboration, with feedback, with sharing that came along with that needing to be safe. Because if people saw me and they didn't like it, then what would that mean about me? Mm, Yeah. It's it's interesting, Cher. And I know you mentioned the deep well that we've been uh, kind of like pulling buckets from. And and it wasn't my intention to go this deep this quick. But I thank you for joining me in in the exploration for being so willing to share your personal experience because I want to get back into your work and what you what you do with with others um, specifically because I think it relates in a lot of ways to what we're talking about. Uh, but but it, it strikes me that the pressures that you felt as a young person almost like reinforced the like individualistic approach to trying to get your way out of it in an interesting way. By that, by that, I mean, you felt these external pressures to like, to be perfect. And we've talked on the podcast previously about how perfectionism kind of reinforces a lot of like white supremacist ideals. Um, and so you feel that external pressure to be perfect. And in turn, because you're feeling this pressure to be perfect, you put more, pre- one, one puts more pressure on themselves to try to figure everything out on their own, which further isolates themselves, which means that you have to be perfect to, to exist or survive. It just, it creates a lot of like cognitive dissonance and it's kind of making my head spin to think about it right now. And, you know, we're talking about this, somebody dealing with this on their own, especially as a young person. So let's let's segue into how you found your way into helping others like professionals, authors, entrepreneurs, uh, and people, especially who come from historically marginalized identities, to not only like help them do the work that they do well or, or help meet them where they are and their in their journeys, but help them to get recognized and seen for that work. So how did you go from where we are talking about right now, this this trajectory in your life to ending up in public relations? Could you give us like <laughs> as concise as, as concise a pathway as you could? Because uh, I know we could probably talk about that for another 20 minutes or so. Yeah, it was like most people's career paths, a lot of serendipity and hard work, right? So I had an internship in college with a career coach who was an adjunct professor. 
at my university. And she asked me to help her do PR for her self-published book. So it was there that I learned the skill set of PR, and I segued that into digital marketing. I worked with Natalie Sisson, who I believe is a colleague of ours, mutual colleague of ours, um, and eventually started my own marketing agency. But all of my clients kept asking me to pitch podcasts for them. And I thought, this is probably a fad, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> and uh, ended up going with podcast pitching full time, but ran into a problem when I noticed that all of my clients were upper middle class white women who essentially had the same skill set and the same life story. And while they were paying me generously, which I always appreciate, love to be paid generously, I was really bored of telling the same story. And I thought there has to be a way that I can make more of an impact than this because that was always really important to me. And then my mother passed away at the age of 49, unexpectedly, of a heart attack. And she had been, uh, she was an aspiring novelist, a romance novelist. And she had written a trilogy of novels in the Tuscan, well, the Umbrian countryside. And um, had always wished and dreamed of publishing them. And didn't get a chance to. I'd helped her edit them and brainstorm how to build a platform. Over the years, obviously, her life was cut too short to see this dream come to fruition. And in the aftermath of her death, I kept thinking, man, I have the skill set to help her and people like me and like so many of my clients tell their stories on a larger stage. Um, and I haven't been doing that. And why not? And so within like a nine to 12 month period, I just like... <laughs> changed the entire trajectory and mission and presence of my business. And I really had to start on a personal level first, right? I had to assess like, okay, well, what's the diversity like in my personal life? And then how can I scale that up to my business? So it really feels like at every stage of this process or journey, I'm in integrity with the vision I have for where I'm going. There's a couple, there's a couple of really interesting points there. So there's the the loss, the the death of your mother, which seems like it, it really inspired uh, a bit of a gut check and, and some introspection about like what you were doing, what you were living in your life. Was there a direct connection there for you in when you were analyzing what you were doing for work and seeing not only you know not only the 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 heartbreak, the loss, the mourning, the death of your mother? Was there a connection there to something that you would have observed in your mother and her dreams to publish her, her romance novels set in Italy? By which I mean, did you feel like your mom, did your mom just run out of time, which is an unfortunate circumstance that, you know, is a pro like life, life happens uh, and so does death. Did your mom just run, run out of time or, or do you think, did you see, did you sense, do you think now that she was being held back by some of the forces, the pressures that we've been talking about. You're nodding, I see, which our listeners won't see. But pick up that thought if you don't mind, please. Yeah, I remember it was twofold, right? Like as I helped her edit her story, English was not her first language. It was, it was a tough process, I would say. And develop the characters and really get a, a feel for what she, her style as a writer. Um, mm -hmm. There was also the added pressure of, but who are you going to sell this to? Right. Mm. Self-publishing is a really tough game. I know firsthand seeing clients go through the process. And so I had some doubts and resistance. She had some systemic ingrained doubts and resistance. Um, and she also, I think, 
couldn't see the ways that she held herself back, right? Mm. She was of a different generation than we are, uh, where there was less self-reflection about systemic injustice. Mm. I think that if she had lived up until this point through George Floyd's murder and had the moments that many of us did of, of color, of who are we really and like what where's our place in the society, we might be having a different conversation where she would have taken a step back and thought, oh, maybe it's not just me. <laughs> maybe there's more to blame here than just my own thoughts and beliefs. And I would I will tell you that a few years after, because I'm actually editing her book right now, um, to oh, publish. Amazing. It will be published one day. Uh, as I was going through the book, probably a couple months ago, I realized, oh, a lot of what held us both back was that I didn't believe in her. And it was really, I think, a projection of my own lack of belief in myself and my ability as a writer. And I thought, you know, as publicists too, right? I see how tough it is for people <laughs> to self-publish books, especially romance novelists. And I didn't want to see her fail. So there's a lot of emotion and beliefs around this process that's really come up. It's been four years since she's passed. She would have been 54 this year. Um, That I feel like as I edit her novel, I'm still getting to know her and I'm still getting to know myself. Yeah. Wow. I I give you a lot of credit for, for being in the, in the process because it's obviously, it comes, it comes across that it's obviously very challenging. Like it's challenging to do that work without the emotional attachment and memories and processing that I can hear you still going through. Something that stood out in your answer as well, Cher, was the the words, uh, maybe it's not just me. And you, you, you kind of uh, posthumously ascribe those to, to your mother and, and how she might perceive these uh, social forces, what, what have, what's been happening, a lot of... Um, reckoning throughout society. And you mentioned specifically the murder of George Floyd in is it late May, early June, 2020, um, and, and the fallout there around the revitalization of the Black Lives Matter movement and so forth. Um, and kind of the recognition point, as I heard it, to internalized oppression and the internalized oppression, meaning forces of oppression, systemic forces, cultural forces, social forces that make one think that they are the problem. And that it's not everybody else, or it's not a lot of other people's, or presumptions, expectations, stigmatizations, racism, misogyny, so forth. I wonder how often, is this a conversation that you have often with clients? At what point when you meet one of your clients, where are they typically in their process of dealing with internalized oppression and the what I assume to be a pretty challenging journey of like coming out or stepping out from various experiences with internalized oppression to be like, and and now I want to be seen or now I'm ready to be on a bigger stage or to get my message out there to help more people to serve. Could you uh, talk with us a little bit about what the experience is like for you in PR with Ginkgo PR, your, your firm, working with folks in this process? Is it overt? Does it come up at all? Or is it just kind of known because you've had a shared experience? They come to me at all different stages in a visibility journey. Some come at the very beginning where they're thinking like, could I, do I even have a story to tell on a podcast or in mainstream media? Like, does my story even matter? All the way to the other end where they're like, this is my third book deal. 
<laughs> I I want X, Y, and Z top tier podcast. I want X, Y, and Z top tier mainstream media. What can you do for me? Right? There's they come to me at the at the spectrum. And I am not a coach. I wouldn't say that I am trauma informed, maybe trauma sensitive. I can I can claim that title. Um, I love the idea of incorporating things like somatics into visibility and PR work, and I'm not an expert at it. So I tend to work more with people on that far end of the spectrum where they're like, I'm ready to be visible now. I have zero qualms about being seen. Get me whatever you can get me. (laughs) And that's where I feel most comfortable working with people. Um, I have a lot of colleagues who I send them to if they are on that left side of the spectrum, right? Where they need some more help and support and Mm -hmm, handholding. Yeah, probably better suited for professional helpers, whether, you know, on the coaching spectrum or outright therapy and and psychology um, side of things. It's really interesting. And another thing that you brought up, Cher, that I found to be really interesting with regard to your personal journey and and how your professional journey was evolving, you mentioned kind of looking inwardly at your own social circles and noticing I think you said like basically like the whiteness, the predominant whiteness of a lot of your social circles and saying to yourself, well, I want to, I really want to work with authors, experts, and professionals who happen to also come from marginalized, historically marginalized identities and overlooked um, populations and experiences. What was the experience like for you? And, and I'm speaking from, from a white perspective and relating to a lot of other mostly like white folks, whether male or female, who over the last couple of years, in light of, of the murder of George Floyd, look, did that same thing. And they were like, wow, a lot of my world, a lot of the books I consume, a lot of the movies and TV that I watch, the people look like me, they sound like me, but I, but I want something else. I want to be exposed to more. I know it's not exactly the same process as it was for you in your life and your journey, but I wonder about like what that experience was like for you, what you learned and how you went about being like, how do I make my, my client's list and my, and my own personal circles a little less white, a little bit more representative of people in the world at large, even, even though you were living in a very white uh, area? Yeah, this was a long process. And it's something that I find every day still surprises me where I have to take a few extra steps, right? That's the tough part. It's not convenient. Um, The social circle that I had was convenient because it belonged to a previous partner of mine. And not being from this area, not growing up here, I didn't have any embedded relationships beyond like what he offered me. So I had to get uncomfortable and I had to do things like use Bumble BFF or go to like entrepreneurship networking events. And it wasn't until I began to just keep trying that I found um, a woman of color who became a very close friend. And then we created our own like little group of people uh, who looked like us and had similar uh, cultural backgrounds to us. Um, and I noticed too, right? Like we, I have always worked online since I was like in my early 20s. And when I looked at my network online, I thought, oh, it's actually very diverse. And just because I don't have local, a local network of diverse individuals or contacts, it doesn't mean that I haven't been honoring or fostering this value that I have. So there was like some getting honest and getting comfortable and then some also like honoring that I have been doing exactly what I wanted. I just haven't been giving myself credit for it. 
Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. I, I did a little research because you're currently located in Spokane, Washington. Is that correct? That's correct. So I looked it up because I, I heard another interview with you and you mentioned that Spokane was was very white. And I was like, I wonder how white it is. So I did a little research in the census. And I think the, the most recent data, 2021 or 2022, um, the racial breakdown of Spokane, Washington was 83% white. And so I also was like, I wonder how white Rhode Island is because that's my home state and it's small place, but pretty, pretty damn white also happens to be exactly 83% white, which is really interesting. So, um, so it's probably no wonder even for, for me who could just continue to exist in very comfortable social circles where people look like me and, and I look like them and vice versa. There's, there's advantage to diversifying our networks in our in our exposure, and let's I want to kind of kind of like tie back into like the importance of this because I think a really pretty antiquated, tired argument that might be made probably by no one that listens to this podcast. If they are, I give them a lot of credit. But a very tired, old, trolling kind of an argument that could be made is uh, that like, oh, what what is it about representation that matters? Is it just about kumbaya? We need everything to be perfectly equal, and like perfectly proportioned to everybody at all times, like depending on how you look. That's a really tired argument to make, right? And it, because it presupposes, um, well, many things, but one of the big presumptions is that, um, that the goal is just to be equally divided, you know, for attention to be equally divided and that to be the, like what the merit is. And it discounts, I wonder what it discounts. I wonder what that argument discounts. So if we could talk about the importance of representation, I mentioned in the intro how I saw myself in different stories and representation as a kid, and that helped to inform my self-concept. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the importance of representation in media, whether it's for young people, for people who see themselves on TV, or just like society at large and like the problems we're trying to solve today. Could you speak to, to maybe a couple of those levels and what comes to mind for you about the the value of this kind of representation we're talking about? Yeah, I actually, I had a thought, an insight while you were speaking, because when I was growing up, there were very few Asians on TV, right? There was like Brenda Wong on Disney. <laughs> there was Lucy Liu and Charlie's Angels. Um, and then there was, gosh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which was not in English, right? So it wasn't even mm-hmm. technically like American culture. Right. And I actually wonder, like watching things like the Joy Luck Club, for example, I don't know if you've ever heard of this or seen it, but we watched it a lot growing up. And I used to think like, oh, those are Asians, but it doesn't mean anything, anything for me. Like it's nice to see them, but it didn't mean that I could like one day be a filmmaker, or a screenwriter. And I actually wonder if my mother or someone else sat me down and said, hey, by the way, the person who wrote this or created this or all these actors, like this is their career and they're Asian and they're visible. And like, that's an option for you too. Um, that might've helped me better connect the dots because I saw, I saw so few examples for role models. And now as representation has increased in the space, it is so much more exhilarating and inspiring to see Asians doing amazing, creative, impactful work. And it really does give me this sense of encouragement, of motivation of, oh my gosh, like they're doing this and I can support them and I can do something similar in my way with my skill set. So there really is a sense of like solidarity that comes from representation. Um, 
And it brings this idea of like anything as possible that you don't immediately get when you're like, well, everybody's white around me and I've never seen anybody who looked like me or thought like me um, have XYZ career. And it's scary to be the first. Uh, why should it, why should we have to have, we, I don't want to always be the first, right? The first to go to college, the first to do this career, the first to like be a trailblazing person. I don't want to be a trailblazer. I want to be, I want to have the option to like be mediocre and to choose whatever field that I want, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so w- transitioning to talk about um, your role in, in PR a little bit more when you're pitching clients, I, I guess I'm curious about how you frame and like asset frame the the work of your clients who like, let's let's presume that you're, you're representing uh, someone from a historically marginalized identity and you're pitching their work. The, their work in and of itself stand like stands on its own, right? Do you off do you oftentimes or at all find yourself also framing their work and their in their identities in a way of um, the asset that it provides to maybe a predominantly like white culture media outlet, right? So like the Today Show or something that doesn't have maybe maybe they're getting better, but historically has not had a whole lot of representation um, of ideas or identities. Do you oftentimes find yourself framing the asset that is somebody coming from a historically marginalized identity and like what that gives to an audience, even if that audience is mostly like a white or privileged identity group? Yeah, I struggled early on with this because I was hesitant to tokenize my clients, not wanting to ever be a token myself. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what that is briefly for listeners who may be unfamiliar? What is tokenization? Yeah. So it's when you're the only person in the room who looks like you or thinks like you. And because of that, people assume they stereotype you in certain ways. So she must be a bad driver, right? Or she must only eat this kind of food, or she must have an accent um, where they just tokenize you because you're the only one there. Uh, and they they kind of take all of their ideas about what it means to be Asian or Black or Indian, and they put it into one person. So that's a token person. You often see token token characters in movies where I'm like, oh, that's the token Asian person. They had, they had to have one person who's Asian, so they're like not racist. So they chose a token Asian person to put in there. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like uh, stereotyping and kind of like compounding different ideas and expectations from outsiders, like into and upon one person who then becomes like an emblem or representation of like their own ideas. It kind of exactly. in turn reduces reduces that person to being something that they're not potentially. Exactly. Totally. So I didn't want to do it to my clients, recognizing how delicate this work can be and how important it is to represent them properly as a whole person, not just an Asian person or an Argentinian person. And what I've found most recently that's helpful is saying Here is the topic that I propose for my client, and I want you to know that this person is both, you know, an immigrant, comes from, um, is a person of color, is queer, for example, maybe is neurodiverse. And so she comes to this work or she approaches this work from a lens of equity and inclusion. And that helps people of color or people from marginalized backgrounds understand how the systems within which they live affect XYZ topic, right? So I say, 
it's not just because she is a person of color that you should feature her, although I think that is a valid enough reason <laughs> to right. feature somebody. Mm-hmm. It's also that because of this unique perspective, she can help your audience who belong to this background or who have this perspective understand themselves better. And so it's an immense value that it brings to mm. the topic at hand. Yeah, that's something that I also really love and value and appreciate too, because you mentioned, so you mentioned some other um, groups and, and identities that you work with. It's not just um, uh, race, racial based or, or, or identity, racial identity based or gender identity, but also LGBTQ plus individuals, neurodivergent individuals. I know that's a term that not um, everybody knows, but it refers to um, somebody's neurology uh, uh, working differently, whether there's a developmental um, disability or developmental difference uh, or ADHD or their brain kind of works, quote unquote, not in the normal or expected ways to a majority group, which is probably, you know, that language is evolving too. Um, But what I love about your work, Cher, and what you just articulated there is that there's added value coming or... um, reinforcing the value of their work from their different experiences and identities, but also that the work and what the messages that the, that your clients do doesn't have to be about their identities, right? Their identities inform the experiences, but they can speak to any litany of topics like, like marriage or religion or authorship of, of books or whatever the case may be. And that there's so much value to that, to a quote unquote, like, majority power holding audience because it provides new ideas. It provides uh, ideas that they may not otherwise be exposed to. It provides, maybe we could say in this podcast, new stories and, and new concepts and new perceptions um, that that would otherwise um, maybe be lost to keep hearing the same things in an echo chamber. What comes up for you as you as you think about the those values and 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 the work that you're doing with your clients? Yeah, I would say that I've become bolder in how I pitch. I used to tiptoe my maybe around their identity or how it was woven into their work, or I would avoid their more subversive topics for fear mm. of being like too controversial. Mm-hmm. And I just always pitch it exactly how it is, because what's most important to me is that if my client gets a yes, they're able to show up in a way that honors their 100% authentic presence. And they should not have to ever diminish or hide the pieces of them that are really, really important to them. So I'm like, yeah, say racist on a podcast. Say white settler colonialist mentality on a podcast. I don't care. Be 100% you. We'll deal with it after. Mm, I love that. It's so important. And I think I I feel like there's a weird tension going on in, in the culture today from both sides of the aisle, like far right, but also far left, where we're getting really scared of saying of saying things. And I understand why. Like we want to be conscious and aware of the impact of our words. And not every story or um, idea deserves equal listening to, especially when they're outright harmful and make people feel unsafe. But I think it's an ongoing practice for us all to to be brave in how we listen to one another and, and recognize like the importance of that listening. And so, you know, I, I thank you for the work that you're doing, Cher. We're, we're, you know, rounding towards the bottom of our interview now, and, and you've been so generous with your time and with your storytelling. So I want to ask you uh, a couple more questions if, if you would entertain me. Um, so we mentioned 
at the top that you have a connection to Italian culture. Not directly, but we mentioned that your mom's book was uh, her romance novel is set in Italy. And I know that you have a very special connection to Italian culture too in the Italian language. You were early days building a podcast on the Italian language and learning Italian and, and still uh, have a connection to that. I think you rebranded the podcast and maybe have a video series now too. Could you tell us about how you discovered a love of Italian culture and maybe a little bit about how it's perhaps taught you, I imagine, to appreciate different cultures at large, even when it's not one that you personally consider to be like your own or one from which you quote unquote come. Yeah, it's actually very connected to my culture, um, not because I'm Italian of any, by any means, but because <laughs> growing up, it was so tough for me to learn Chinese Mandarin. I found it almost impossible. Um, and I thought, maybe I just can't learn languages. But I was obsessed with them. I loved like Japanese, um, Korean, right? Spanish, French, all of that. I wanted to learn all the languages and I wanted to be yeah. a U.S. diplomat. That was like my ideal career as, as oh, a growing up. Oh, I love up. that. Uh, but I was like, if I can't learn this one language, I'm not going to be a diplomat. <laughs> <laughs> so I took Italian in school um, a couple semesters. I was not impressed, to be honest. I thought, this is like, bleh, okay, whatever. But then I had the chance to study abroad. And I prepared for that uh, semester abroad with like Michelle Thomas's audio tapes. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they're amazing. And I thought, I'm ready. Like, I'm going to be ready to converse. I'll be fine. And I get to Italy. And I can't even order a salad without like getting the wrong, like not knowing what, what the meat was or like getting a sandwich instead. And I thought I have so much work to do. And over the course of the semester, like really immersed myself in like friendships and relationships and um, experiences that brought me closer to fluency. And it just felt like, oh, I get it. The language is the bridge that keeps you it like it takes you from tourist to somebody who is empathetic and compassionate about a new culture. Like you really get beneath the surface of the culture when you have the language as your tool. And I thought this is like the coolest thing. It's like it's opening the wardrobe, right? It's the spinning house in the tin in the tornado. Um, this is like my pathway. And when I came home, I thought, I, I don't want to lose what I've learned, like worked so hard to earn. So I built a business around teaching Italian. And I, all I would do is study Italian. I would share like the cool things that I was learning. I'd have a native person edit it. And I would put it online. And I started a podcast around that. And the readership and the community just grew. And I've had it now for over 10 years. Um, and people who come to me are very passionate very committed and very in love with the Italian culture and their heritage because they're usually heritage speakers. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I love that. And I love the lessons um, that it taught you about like going beneath and accessing like the story, the culture through the language and um, and relating it to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and, and the Wizard of Oz, as you mentioned earlier, those stories that you loved as a kid. So I wonder if in this final, I have a final question. I ask it, I say that I ask it often. I oftentimes forget to ask this question, despite the name of the podcast being the new story is share. But I do sometimes like to ask uh, my guests for like a final thought. Uh, based on our conversation, you know, we, we take a critical eye, a critical lens, we kind of critique different things that are happening socially, culturally, but also want to leave uh, a positive note and an optimistic note. And I wonder, based on our conversation, um, 
we talked about media representation and 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 how to increase um representation in media but also how to um support people who happen to come from historically marginalized identities and getting their work out there so when you think about these topics in the critical lens we applied what comes to mind for you thinking about what you'd like the news story to to become what would you like to see most happen in our world today in society today especially but not limited to media representation what would you like the news story you think to be i would love to see collaboration across sectors for the ultimate goal of increasing representation in the media, right? Like mm. we see journalists, editors, producers, public publicists, um, entrepreneurs, authors, creatives working together to increase this idea we have of equity to make sure that we're properly representing all the quotes and articles, that we're, good, we're getting a diverse amount of sources in our pieces, that we are showing a diverse perspectives in our work, right? We're, we're really being conscious and intentional about who we're including um, in our work so that we feel that people can, that the most amount of people can see themselves in what we create, what we produce. Cher Hale is the founder and director of Ginkgo PR. Cher, thank you so much for joining us on the news story as it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Dave. And thank you, as always, for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. If you're feeling generous today, if you're feeling good, if you enjoyed what we talked about, please follow or subscribe to our show, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so you never miss a new episode. You can also leave us a rating and review on those platforms. Smash that five stars for us to help others know that what we're doing is legit and worth listening to. It goes a long way into helping us find new listeners. We have a slew of new episodes coming your way in the coming months. Over six new interviews coming. Stay tuned, stick around, share the episode with a friend. Thank you for being here. Until next time, story on.